Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew 28, we're going to look at what should be a very familiar passage to us, the Great Commission. We've been spending time in the month of October talking about the mission of CPC to be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church. And we've been spending time with Jesus in the upper room in John 15 through 17 as he spoke with his disciples hours before he's arrested and tried and crucified. And today we pick up Jesus's instructions in Matthew 28 when he has risen from the dead and before he goes and reigns at the right hand of the Father. Hear now the great commission from Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Jesus, you promised to be with us always to the end of the age, which means you are here present with us now. And I pray that you would apply that presence and that authority that you have to our hearts, that you would change us, that you would shape us, that you would rally us around this great commission to do your work in this city. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, we read the Great Commission. Jesus' instructions to the disciples, which are also the instructions to the church. He says, I want you to go. I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize. And I want you to teach. That's your role. That's what we do as the church. That sounds pretty simple and pretty clear and pretty straightforward until it doesn't until we look out over the ecclesiastical landscape of America and we realize that our churches are busy doing something, but it's not always the Great Commission. It's so easy for a church to get off target and to lose the vision that Jesus is giving us here in Matthew chapter 28. I think there's a lot of reasons for that disparity between the Great Commission and what our churches are busy doing, and there's a lot of reasons for that, not least of which includes my own sin, our sin, and selfishness and distractedness. But if I could put my finger on just one of the reasons for that disparity this morning, it would be a way to read Matthew 28. There's two ways to read this passage that send us as a church in two different directions. You can read Matthew 28 as a line, or you can read it as a circle, and the way you read it is going to change what you do as a church. Let's talk about reading this as a line, reading the Great Commission as four chronological steps that you arrive at. Number one, step one, you go. Number two, you make disciples. Number three, you baptize. Number four, finally, once you've done all that, you've arrived at teaching and you teach teach, teach. After all, Jesus says in verse 20, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Everything that I've commanded you, I want you to teach. That is a whole lot of teaching. That's a kind of teaching that truly never ends. But you begin to think about all the teaching venues that we have at our disposal. Think about this as a church. You have personal devotions every morning and family worship every evening. You have Sunday school and Sunday morning worship and evening worship. You have Wednesday programs for all ages, small groups, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, events like VBS, concerts, conferences, seminars, 
on top of a regular diet of books, podcasts, and publications. All of this is doing the last step of the Great Commission, right? We've done all these things. We've already went. We've already made disciples. We've already baptized. Everybody's covered. And so now we camp out at the fourth and final step. We teach and we teach and we teach and we teach. And who among us is going to stand up and say, I'm exhausted can I learn less about Jesus? I mean, I am just completely spent in this. I've seen people get put in charge of a pancake prayer breakfast for saying less than that. I mean, you just don't say that in a church setting. You gotta be careful about those things. Here's the point I'm trying to make, and it's a very careful point. I am not saying that the American church needs to know our Bible less. I'm not saying that we need to know Jesus any less. I am saying that the teaching arm of the church can be ill-defined, unaccountable, and the teaching can become an end in itself. All of us have done this. All of us have been a part of this. All of us have gotten this massive wheel of a volunteer teaching program running, and we need scores of volunteers to turn the wheel, but we don't have a crystal clear sense of where the thing is headed. I've done that in my life. I've gotten busy running myself ragged, turning this wheel, looking back over what I think are new talking and teaching points in which I feel like I've made some very great contributions to the teaching scheme, but I'm not sure I've seen disciples who turn around and make disciples. It's because this thing can be linear, which in our case, that means it can be terminal. It becomes an end itself. You arrive at step four and you die in step four of the Great Commission. That's not what we want to do. We're not talking about the line. We're talking about a second way to read this thing, which is a circle. It's an ever-turning, multiplying circle. You go, you make, you baptize, and you teach. And as you teach, you're drawing in new people to go and to make and to baptize and to teach. And these new believers are being put into this thing that continues to multiply indefinitely. That circular reading of the Great Commission, that understanding that the teaching is leading to more going and making and baptizing, and this will multiply, that becomes a target on the wall that defines absolutely everything we do. Is what we're doing making us grow deeper and wider? Are we walking more deeply with Christ because of these things? Are we growing numerically in conversions because of these things? Is, Is this making us look more like Jesus and are new people coming to know Jesus? I think that's what led 17th century pastor Thomas White to say a very profound point. It's better to hear one sermon only and meditate on that than to hear two sermons and meditate on neither. It's better to hear one and let the word do its work. Let it drive us deeper in our relationship with Christ and outward in drawing new people in than to hear so many venues that we meditate on none of them at all. That's the target of this church. It's that circular reading of the Great Commission. It's seeing everything we do grow deeper and wider. What does that look like for me personally as I grow in my walk with Christ and I share him with others? What does that look like in my life group? 
where we go deep together and sharpen one another and we identify leaders who will then multiply life groups. And what does that look like if it's happening individually and in life groups then as a church as a whole as we continue to grow and plant new churches? Because the planting of a new church is simply another geographical venue where this multiplication can continue to happen. According to our passage, Matthew 28, by Christ's presence and authority, disciples make disciples in churches that plant churches. Now, the astute reader is looking at Matthew 28 and saying that's all well and good, but Jesus doesn't actually say the word church, right? He doesn't say anything about church planting, and I'm so glad you said that because we want to turn and understand how the disciples received this command. They're the ones standing there, all 11 of them. They hear this command of the Great Commission to go and to make it and to baptize and to teach. Now, what do they do with it? They understood that to be happening exclusively within the context of planting and multiplying new churches. When they heard this great commission, they understood their role, as we're about to see, was to turn around and plant new churches. You don't baptize anybody at large. You don't just baptize them and send them on your way. They're baptized into a local community. We don't just grow as believers, as spiritual free agents drifting here and there. We grow up in a local body and we're launched from there. The disciples, when they heard this commission, they knew it meant we need local elder-led fellowships that are going to fulfill this commission. I wonder if you could turn with me in your Bibles, just flip ahead from Matthew 28 to Acts chapter 11. I just want to, in the next couple of minutes, flip through a couple of chapters in Acts and just see the beehive of church planting activity that comes out of this great commission. Jesus says it, he empowers them with his Holy Spirit, and then this is what we read in the book of Acts. By the time we get to chapter 11, where you're turning now, the church in Jerusalem has already been planted. It's thriving. This is where the disciples were. Uh, They've seen many conversions, thousands of conversions. They've appointed elders and deacons to now lead this church in Jerusalem. And and there might be a little hesitation for them to kind of go out from there and to plant new churches. And persecution comes. That great pruning that James spoke about this morning from God. And because of persecution in Jerusalem, believers are then forced to begin to relocate to Judea and Samaria and beyond that. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 11. Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for Jews. So in the very beginning, The gospel was being shared along ethnic lines. Because of persecution, they begin to speak that gospel. And all of a sudden, not only are people moving into these communities and talking about the gospel to Jews, but then we hear in a few verses later that these unnamed laypersons are speaking the gospel to Gentiles as well. They come to faith. Jerusalem hears about this, and they send Barnabas. They want to send Barnabas to see what's happening in a place like Antioch. Look at verse 25. Barnabas, he gets these instructions, and it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul is going to be named Paul. You're going to get this theme in Acts that nobody's doing ministry by themselves. He has this directive to go to Antioch, and he grabs Saul to come with him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church. 
The beginning of the year, it was just a bunch of people coming to faith. And by the end of the year, they're teaching in a, an established church. And they taught a great many people in Antioch. And in the Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's the beginning of this incredible movement in Acts chapter 11. Now, Acts chapter 12 is an interlude. James is arrested and he's beheaded. Peter is arrested and he's freed. So we're kind of reminded right away that this is not a church planter friendly environment. It's extremely hostile to the preaching of the gospel, but no matter. Acts 12.24 says, the word of God increased and it multiplied. Look at Acts 13. You got this brand new church in Antioch. It's just beginning to meet together. What are they doing? They're praying and they're fasting together. And then in verse 2, the Holy Spirit calls its two very best teachers. You've got this tiny house church and you've got Paul and Barnabas and they're here and they've got leadership in the church and the Holy Spirit says to them, I want you to take Saul and Barnabas and I want them to go on to continue to fulfill this great commission. And all of a sudden you see that this thing is not linear, it's not terminal, it doesn't end with creating this massive teaching center in Antioch where Barnabas and Paul, they could have stayed and they could have led some very great seminars. The Great Commission is driving them outward to say, I need your best and your brightest to move on from here because this is going to happen again and it's going to happen again and it's going to happen again and the pace begins to pick up in the book of Acts. Acts 13 verse 4, they go to Cyprus. We don't hear in Acts about a church being planted there, but our church has already studied the book of Titus, which is a letter from Paul to the missionary Titus to go to Cyprus and appoint elders in a church that's planted there. On from Cyprus, we have a church that's planted in Antioch of Pisidia, and then Iconium, and then Lystra. Look at chapter 14, verse 21. After all those churches have been planted, the disciples then, they go back to each of those churches and they strengthen them, they encourage them, and then they appoint elders. And then after that, in Acts chapter 14, the big cities in the Roman Empire begin to fall under the purview of God's great commission. Acts chapter 16, one of my favorite church planting passages in all of scripture. What do... A wealthy businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a jail warden have in common. Sounds like the start of a really bad joke. All three of them come to faith in Christ. They're born again in Acts 16 in the city of Philippi, and they come together into what has to be one of the most unlikeliest of churches ever in the city of Philippi. Lydia, when she's the first convert in Philippi and she hosts the missionaries who are there with her, she creates and exposes this other great theme in the book of Acts that continues to play, God working through women. You have Tabitha, Trifina, Damaris, Lydia, Lois, Eunice, Priscilla, Phoebe, Claudia, courageous godly, influential women. They're launching mercy ministries. They're sharing the gospel. They're discipling their children. They're shouting down false teachers. They're hosting churches that meet in their home. These women are fundamental to the mission of what God is doing throughout the Roman Empire. I'm so grateful in this church that we have dozens of those kind of women. Lord, would you give us dozens more to fulfill the Great Commission? 
Acts 17, 18, and 19. You've got Thessalonica, you've got Corinth, you've got Ephesus. Churches continue to be planted in the known Roman world. And we're going to stop with Ephesus. But I want us to look at chapter 19, verse 10, just very briefly. Because Paul camps out in Ephesus for the longest time he's spent anywhere in his missionary career. He's there for two years. And and Acts 19.10 says, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul's camped out in Ephesus. He's teaching from this hall. People are hearing this teaching, and what are they doing with it? They leave the city of Ephesus, and they begin to speak the gospel to this entire region. So that by the time Paul is done teaching in this one city, it can be said, Luke can report in Acts 19, that basically everybody in this region has heard the gospel. They've gone from towns to villages, and they've spoken what they've heard Paul teach. And so now everybody in this region has heard the gospel. This is not just now Paul and the disciples who are doing this work. You begin to add up who's being named in Acts and who's being named in the epistles. And you hear besides these unnamed laypersons, you've got 60 people who have spread out in the then known world from perhaps India all the way to Spain. And it is no wonder that a mob of people grab a group of believers and they bring them in front of city authorities in Thessalonica and they say, these men have turned the world upside down. They've turned the world, they started in Jerusalem and now we blink and they're everywhere. They're in every community, every city across the known world. They are changing the dynamic of our cities. They are turning the world upside down. The disciples, the church, they hear this great commission. I want you to go, and I want you to make, and I want you to baptize, and I want you to teach. And the way they play this out in their life is they plant elder-led churches in every single community that they find. That's the story of the book of Acts and the New Testament itself. If that's the biblical basis, if that's the storyline, where do we as a church begin to plug into that story that's being already told? Where does Columbia Presbyterian fit into that? We want to see this kind of multiplication. We want to join the kind of multiplication that God is doing personally and in our small groups and in as church as a whole. We want to see new churches planted globally and locally. Globally, Jesus commissions the church, verse 19 in Matthew 28, to reach all nations. I want this to go forward to all nations, all people groups. There are now today, as hard as it is to believe, 2 billion people. 2 billion people and some 6,000 ethnic groups that still have no active evangelistic witness in their presence. They haven't heard the gospel explained to them. They do not know the gospel. You hear massive numbers like that, and it's hard to get your hands on that. It's hard to understand what that means. I got a picture of that when our family lived in India for two years. We were missionaries to India, 
And I'll never forget the scene of flying from Dubai to Bangalore in the south. And when you come in over the country of India and into our state of Karnataka and you look out the plane window and you see town and village and town and village spreading out until the horizon before you land in Bangalore and you realize there is no Christian, there is no church in any of these communities. And if that doesn't change, these people will never hear the good news of the gospel. It becomes the pressing priority of the church today to preach the gospel where it has not been preached, to reach and to speak the good news to the unreached. God is calling some of us who are sitting here, right here, right now, to be a part of that mission to preach the gospel. Some of our best and our brightest at CPC, he's going to raise up and he's going to send overseas full time to fulfill this vocational work of preaching the gospel to the unreached. And he's going to call the rest of us as a church to give up manpower and money to see that very thing happen. That happened in our church last year. We were able to send out founding members, a family of our church, who returned to their home city in China. And because of the time they spent there and the power of God at work in that community, there is today a tiny house church in that city of born-again believers. And I promise you, for as painful as it was to see them go, no one in our church has wanted to see back that time and that money and the prayers that have been spent to see the gospel flourish. That's our joy as the church, to see the gospel proclaimed where it's not being proclaimed. May the Lord do that in our midst more and more and more. May he raise up more and more and more to do that. That's going to happen globally, and simultaneously that's going to happen locally. Now you talk about those two things, and when you talk about local church planting within our state and within our city, in a place like South Carolina and Columbia, that becomes definitely the more controversial of the two, because there's a lot of objections to why we would plant churches in a state like ours and a city like ours. The objections we typically hear are, there's already so many churches in South Carolina, so many churches in Columbia, why do we need any more? There's the objection that says, if there's already a good church in a neighborhood, then we can consider that neighborhood reached. And then there's the objection that says, if there's not a good church in that neighborhood, we should be spending our resources to revitalize that church and not to plant a new church on top of it. Those are all fantastic objections. We've laid the biblical groundwork to say why church planning is important. And to answer those objections, I just want to close with making two arguments. One is a logistic argument and one is a pragmatic argument for why we consider this of utmost importance to plant churches in our city and our metro statistic region and our state in light of where we are today. First is the logistic reason. This is just strictly by the numbers. Studies tell us that an average church has a footprint in a community. They have an influence in a community of a thousand people. You think about a church and you think about the true deep relationships that that church has with its neighborhood and its workplace, and a church can reach about a thousand folks. For every thousand people in a city or a community, you should have a healthy church in its midst to reach that community. 
Now, I just used the description healthy church, and it begs the question, how do you define that? What is a healthy church? How do you consider a thousand people being reached by a healthy church? And we define healthy very simply as a Presbyterian church. If there's a Presbyterian church there, uh, we consider it the work is done as far as we're concerned. No, we don't use that descriptor at all. Imagine that you set the bar very low for how you define a healthy church. By a healthy church, I just mean three things. Number one, do they guard their church membership? Do you have to be a born-again believer to be a member of this church? Or have they populated their seats and their church roles with people who were born Christians and call themselves Christians but have never been truly born again? Do they guard their church membership? Number two, are they grounded in the word of God? Do they open the Bible? Do they teach the Bible? Do they direct everything they do based on the Bible? And number three, are they beginning in some small way to fulfill the Great Commission? Are they looking outside of themselves to say, how am I participating in making new disciples? You set that very low bar as to what a healthy church is, and all of a sudden there's a huge disparity between the number of church buildings that there are in Colombia and the number of healthy churches that are here. Keep all of that in the back of your mind and think about these statistics. Richland County, our county, is going to grow by 50,000 people in the next 15 years. Lexington County, right next to us, is going to grow by 56,000 people in the next 15 years. Strictly by the numbers... If we're not talking about our current need for healthy churches, if we're not even talking about the attrition rate of churches, the fact that about 12,000 churches nationwide close their doors every single year, we're not talking about any of that. We're just talking about keeping up with population growth. That means we need a hundred Bible teaching evangelistic churches planted in the next 15 years in these two counties alone. Are we making plans to do that? Are we plotting and scheming and praying and fasting for how God is going to multiply us and other healthy churches in our community just to keep up with the population growth we're experiencing in our city? That's the logistic argument. The second argument is the pragmatic one, and it concerns itself with the health and the witness of the church. It shouldn't surprise us at all that if God is calling us to church planting, it's also the healthiest thing that a home church can possibly do. Nationwide, only 3% of churches plant daughter churches, and yet this is one of the healthiest things that a mother church can possibly do. I'll just give us three reasons that studies show why. Number one, it's the most effective way to train up new leaders. Why giving away your best and your brightest, you create a vacuum in which new leadership needs to rise to the challenge. You plan a new church and you're talking about a new set of elders and deacons and pastors and small group leaders and ministry heads who now have an opportunity to lead that they wouldn't have had at the home church. Number two, um, studies tell us that planting churches is the most effective way to ensure the health of the home church. There's a massive study done by the Southern Baptists that said they surveyed new church plants and they said, we can tell this church is going to survive if it gives away people and resources early on in the life of the church. If it does that, 
our survey shows that the home church that has given away people and resources is going to grow in attendance and baptisms and its chance of survival. Isn't that incredibly counterintuitive that the more people and money you give away, that the more open-handed you are with the church that God is growing in your midst, that the better your chance of survival is? It's utterly counterintuitive and it's utterly according to this organic plan of God to multiply the church. Number three, finally, pragmatic reason. It's one of the most effective ways to do evangelism. Studies tell us that the evangelistic um, uh, power of a local church declines in its age. The older a church gets, the less people it leads to Christ. At the home church, let's fight that average. Let's pray, let's plead, let's fast, let's fight the average that we will decline in our evangelistic witness so that we might grow in our evangelistic witness, but let's do both. Let's do that and let's plant new churches that are going to effectively reach our neighbors with the gospel. Biblically, logistically, pragmatically, church planning is always before us. We're, by God's grace, planting a church in Orangeburg right now. We're looking for a church planter for the east side of Lexington County. And we'll continue to do this to see God multiply churches in our midst. Now, I know we've covered a lot of biblical ground, a lot of logistic ground, a lot of demographics. I see eyes glazing over. So I'm just going to close with a football illustration, okay? Um, I don't know if this is an urban legend, but I heard this story about Steve Spurrier. When he first came to USC, he was walking around campus and walking around the football complex, and he noticed all these posters that had been made, and they were all about Clemson. Down with Clemson, let's beat Clemson, we want to stick it to Clemson. And Steve Spurrier, he was furious. He yanked all those posters down, and he called an emergency team meeting, and he said, I saw all these posters about Clemson. Why are you talking about an in-state rivalry? I want us to set our eyes on a national championship. I don't care about being the best in the state. I want to be the best in the nation. You guys are looking at your toes. I want you to look up at the horizon, and I want you to see what we can be. It changes the whole course of how you train as a football team. Now, I guess the tables have been completely turned, and you could use that illustration for Clemson. I mean, imagine after last night's win, Dabo walks into the locker room and he hears a player say, man, all I want to do this year is beat USC. That would just be fantastic. I would love that. Dabo would say to him, look, man, you're suffering from a lack of vision. Beat USC. If that's what you want to do, there's other schools you can play for. You can go play for the Citadel if that's your goal for the year. I'm talking about a national championship. I'm talking about a vision that's bigger than you or I. I'm talking about seizing this thing for the nation." The same could be true for the local church. Right in Matthew 28, we're standing in front of the resurrected Son of God who is going to reign for all eternity. And we've got local churches like ourselves that are staring at our toes. And we're thinking about getting this building in place and increasing attendance and giving and getting these ministries and program offerings figured out. And Jesus is saying, get your eyes off the ground and get it up to the horizon. I'm laying claim to every nation and tribe and people group. And my glory is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. 
That's the vision I want you to have as a church. That's the mission that we are marching towards. It's going to cost us everything, but it is going to see the glory of God fulfilled in this earth. And to that end, we pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you do that? Would you show your presence and your power? Would you rescue us from small visions? And would you lead us forward to this great commission to go and to make disciples and to baptize and to teach and to see churches planted that will plant churches? You will do this in our midst. We pray in your name. Amen.